It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you in to the first edition of the Virtual Bible Study for 2012. This is the January 5th, 2012 edition of the Virtual Bible Study. We're live, we're on your computers, and we appreciate you being here tonight as well. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you on the Virtual Bible Study. Looking forward to a good study tonight. Looking good forward to a good discussion with you and with our listeners, and you participate in one of three ways. If you're listening to us live tonight, give us a call at 877-381-4567. If you would like to email us, the email address is questions at collegeu.com, and the chat room is open with listeners from around the world tonight, and so we hope you'll join in there as well. Jacob, we got an email from a regular listener who had been poking around in our archive files. Oh, a lot of uh, listeners are doing that. Yeah, and at the, you know we don't mention that a whole lot, but our archives actually are a pretty good study resource these days because we've got over 300 recorded episodes of the virtual Bible. 300 hours, and and they're on a huge variety of topics. And so if you're if you're studying something, have a question about something, if you'll go to the archive page, we don't have a search engine on our website, but if you type Control F. And put in a keyword, uh, for instance, if you wanted to study about Jehovah's Witnesses, and you type that in, it, it will highlight all of our archived editions that, that deal with that subject. And so you can use that as a resource. Well, anyway, one of our listeners was looking there on our archive page and got to listening to a program we did not too long ago in which we were talking about Mormonism as a cult. Yeah. And uh, he said, I was recently listening to the archive on Mormonism being a cult. You indicated that you asked the Mormons to prove their false doctrine is inspired by God. Of course, they cannot do that. I made the point on that program, Jacob, that when the Mormons come and want to study with me, I am glad to do so, but on only one topic. And that is, I asked them to prove to me that the writings of Joseph Smith are inspired by God. Uh, I, I make the point, that's what I do. If I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe right. the Bible, right, uh, and and that's where you got to start, and so that's where they've got to start with me. I, typically, they will not engage me in such a study. Right. Uh, so this listener goes on to say, but I was curious, how would I today prove that the Bible is inspired by God? If I was to ask them, that is, if you ask Mormons to prove what they believe, then I need to be able to do the same, and I truly have no idea. Thanks. And that's so, a, yeah, that's a, that was an interesting comment. I, I was I was interested to hear that. And I wonder honestly, this, this listener gives us an honest evaluation of his own situation. I, he says I couldn't do it. I wonder how many Christians are in that same boat. I would guess that, that a fairly significant percentage of Christians are in that same boat. That if if pressed to prove what they believe about the Bible. They'd have trouble doing it. In other words, now they believe that the Bible's inspired, and they've, right. believed, they've believed that all their lives. Right. Maybe their parents believed it and taught them to believe that. Yeah. But when it, when push comes to shove, if they had to actually prove it to a, an atheist or an unbeliever, if they had to defend uh, that. 
proposition that the Bible is the inspired word of God, they'd have trouble doing it. All right. Uh, that's an interesting question. I appreciate uh, the listener who uh, sent in that comment. We want to talk about that tonight. You posed three questions for us earlier today. What are those questions that will serve as our framework for tonight? All right. To our update list, uh, earlier today we sent out these questions. I always remind you, get on the update list if you're not. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, put me on the list. We'll do it. Here's what we sent out to our list today. Number one, do you think the inspiration of the scriptures is provable or must this be accepted as simply a leap of faith? Right. In other words, can, can you prove it or do you just have to say, well, I can't really prove it, but I'm just going to believe it anyway? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think it's unprovable, explain why. That was the follow-up. Or, if you think it is provable, give your arguments that you believe prove the inspiration of the scriptures. That's what we want to do. We want to be able to give our arguments. Uh, you, you know, we think about First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that tells us to be ready always, to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Yep. So we're actually commanded as Christians, be ready. Somebody asks you, be ready. Give them an answer. Yep. And, and that word, give an answer there, is actually uh, the idea of making a defense, mm-hmm. like in a court of law, present your case sort of thing. So we need a, that's what we want. We want to look at those arguments. Okay. Now, for those of who, who present arguments, I ask a follow-up question. Which of those arguments do you think is the most convincing to you personally? Now, there, we're going to look at several different ways of proving that the scriptures are inspired. Of those arguments, which one is most compelling to you? I, I, I think in this matter that you know different people will be moved by or convinced or or maybe will their their senses will be appealed to more uh, by some arguments than others. What what appeals to you? Right. And then finally, we ask the question about internal proofs and external proofs to to get to, to do a little defining of what we some when we're studying evidence. Sometimes we talk about internal evidence and external evidence. So what are those, and what is the appropriate use of each one? What do you think of the values of using internal evidences? What do you think of the values of using external evidences? All right, we look forward to hearing from you at eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at College View. Dot com And the chat room is uh, buzzed tonight, so be sure to join in there if you're not logged in. Now, I want to start the question, though, tonight, uh, Dad, I want to ask you, are we, is there something wrong with asking, can we prove the Bible's inspired? I mean, is that to show that we don't have faith? Is it, uh, is there, you know, should I feel guilty if I want to have some proof that the Bible's inspired? No, I, I actually think it's the right thing to do. I, th- I think that we... We should expect to have proof. I don't believe that God ever asks us to just blindly accept things without, right. without convincing evidence. And so I don't, think that's, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to say, I need the proof personally. I need to be convinced. Uh-huh. And then I need to be able to present that evidence to other people too. Okay. Because we, I think in the world increasingly we're going to be confronted by people who do not believe. Uh, there are a lot of atheists in the world. Their numbers are increasing. The atheists have actually become pretty evangelistic about their cause. Yeah. You know, we interviewed Dan Barker uh, a good while back. Monty's behind the controls tonight. Monty, you, you heard Dan Barker interviewed earlier this week, didn't you, on a national call-in program? Yeah, I was listening to the talk radio one day this week at work, and I believe it was the Laura Ingram show, and they had him on there discussing something about it with, with what I was doing. I wasn't able to catch all of it, but I recognized his name and all and remembered that, 
we had talked to him on the virtual Bible study. Yeah, what's like, that name of that group? Freedom from Religion. Freedom from Religion. Dot org. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, the, the, he's he's like a preacher, uh, former. From, well, but I mean, he's like a uh, preacher, preacher for that cause. Atheism, yeah. yeah, for that cause. He's a former uh, preacher of the Bible, but now he's an atheist, yeah. and he he uses preacher techniques to try and convert people. So we're going to run into people. Uh, but, you know, I, actually, Jacob, I think even among so-called religious people, we're going to find more occasion to have to defend the inspiration of the Scriptures because there are a lot of people who are religious by their definition, and yet they don't have any confidence in the infallibility or the, the, the verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. And so even to those people, we're going to have to, to be ready to defend our case. All right. Uh, we look forward to hearing you. I believe that program with uh, Dan Barker, if you're interested, was from February 21st, 2008. Uh, atheism debate uh, with uh, Dan Barker, if you're interested in, in listening to that program. And uh, we do, as you said, need to be prepared to share our belief and our faith with our neighbors. And we don't want to tell them just you uh, need to believe it, because I do. We should tell them you should believe it, and here are the proofs. It is not a foreign concept, though, even in the Scriptures, to present proofs. Uh, that we have proofs of Jesus' uh, deity. The fact that he is the Son of God uh, presented in uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, summarizes the proofs that were given as being reasons why we should believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Yeah, uh, your words reminded me of what Paul did in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Paul, as his manner was, went into the synagogue of the Jews and three days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Mm-hmm. He, he was he was basically presenting his case and proving it. Yeah, And that's what we need to be prepared for. All right. And we look forward to hearing from you. What are some reasons why you believe that the Bible is inspired? You can send those in the chat room. Maybe is the best way for you to get them across. But we prefer to hear from you on the phone. It's toll-free, and the line is open at 877-381-4567. We got some email responses, and I got one here, Jacob, that I haven't printed off from Anthony, so don't let me forget to get to Anthony's as well. Um, uh, we got an email from Chris. We asked the question, do you think the inspiration of the Scriptures is provable? Yes. Or does it just have to be taken on a blind leap of faith? He says, I believe it is provable, else I would not live my life according to what is in it. No, no, I think he's right. If it's not, if you can't prove it, then what's the use? If it's not provable, uh, then we'd just pretty much be wasting our time, or at least we'd be, be taking a sort of a, a, a eternal gamble. I mean, what? Yeah. What? You, you might as well, you know, believe in unicorns or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So Chris says, yeah, he he's definitely believes it's provable. Eric says, yes, the inspiration of the Bible can be proven in a sense that there are evidences and arguments that support it, but it is not provable in the sense that we can re- reproduce and test it. So we must evaluate the evidence and decide whether or not to believe. This requires faith, but not a leap of faith. And Eric's point is a good one. Yeah, uh, it's, it, uh, there's it's, two there's two kinds of evidence. Okay. In a in a court of law. You prove things that happen, but you can't reproduce them. Right. In a scientific laboratory, you prove things by repeating it over and over again and observing it and measuring it. Okay. So that's empirical evidence. Empirical. A, a, a scientific laboratory is empirical evidence, but in a court of law, you can prove things even though they are not repeatable. Right. And so there's there's different kinds of proof. We're talking about a kind of proof that's not repeatable, but it is provable. But at the end of the day, it's still going to require faith. But it's faith based. It's faith based upon 
Uh, yeah, yeah. People have a weird idea about faith these days. In fact, I, I remember a while back reading some children's definitions of what faith is. Uh, one kid says, "Faith is when you believe something you know isn't true." <laughs> yeah, that's wrong. But, you know, faith, the word faith makes some people assume automatically uh, equate that to a blind leap. Right. You know, no, I'm going to believe it. I, I can't prove it, and it probably isn't so, but I'm going to believe it anyway. Right. That's not faith. Yes. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. The evidence is there to convince us to believe. All right. Let us know your thoughts in the chat room tonight. And okay. you oh go ahead. We got one more email and I've lost it. Wait a minute. From, 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 from our friend Jim, who is now residing in Kentucky. Uh, in Tompkinsville, Kentucky, we've got an email from Jim. Jim, glad you're participating with us on the virtual Bible study again. I hope everything's going well in Kentucky. He says, Yes, I believe it is provable. The scriptures themselves are proof. They have existed for over 3,500 years and can be traced back through prior manuscripts. The accuracy of the Bible in mentioning people and places in the time frame those people are included in prove that they are written when they say. Uh, uh, I, I want to reserve the rest of his comments because he sort of goes into this, to the, the follow-up to that. If it's provable, what are your arguments? We'll talk about that some in of those, the middle. We're getting some of those in the chat room that we'll include as well if you'd like to send yours in. Right. Uh, I got an interesting comment from Peter, and last I knew Peter was in Australia. Right. Peter, good to have you on the program tonight. Peter said, people have been trying to disprove the Bible for centuries and have not succeeded. And that in and of itself should be good proof to us to, to, to believe that the Bible is inspired because there has been an enormous amount of effort to disprove it and to prove that it is not inspired, and they've failed. So it would lead you to believe that, uh, well, it must be inspired. I, I, I think Peter's on the right track there. I, I don't believe that there's any book that comes even close there's there's in fact there's no there's no subject matter that comes even close to having been scrutinized and viciously attacked like the bible and yet it survives yeah. and it, it's withstood all of those assaults and therefore uh, I, th- I think he's exactly on the right track. All right, good to have Peter on the, f- the line with us tonight. And I understand that, uh, that probably Peter's eating lunch while he listens to us on Friday uh, afternoon in Australia. Yeah. So I hope that uh, we're settling your lunch okay there for you, Peter. Good to hear from you on the program let, tonight. Let me read f- from Anthony what he says in email. He's in the chat room, too. But an email, he says, perhaps I'm barking up the wrong tree, but here's my take on the idea of being provable. Provable, I guess, is a relative term. Provable to whom? Provable in an American court of law, provable beyond a reasonable doubt, or provable in the sense that I can't prove that the president lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Some things can be proven empirically through our senses. For example, I can prove that the president lives in the White House because I could take you there and show you. The inspiration of the Bible is not provable empirically, at least in this sense. So the proof must be more in the way of preponderance of evidence. Even with this approach, however, it might be provable to some people and not provable to others. You can comp- you can convince some that the Bible is inspired, but you may present the same evidence to another person, and he will reject your claim of inspiration. I'm open to criticism on this point, but off the top of my head, it seems that the provability depends on the person you're trying to convince. I, I think that's probably true. And again, uh, Anthony emphasizes what we were saying about there are different kinds of evidence. Uh, there are some people that are not going to be persuaded, obviously. If if people could be persuaded, we have a world full of believers, there wouldn't be such a thing as atheists. Uh, but I think, to, I would make this argument to an open-minded person who will consider the evidence, 
they can be it can be proved with an honest heart with an honest open-minded person with an honest heart can be convinced that the bible is inspired by god good comments i'm convinced it's time for a break we're gonna get a break and we're gonna get your comments on the other side give us a call it's toll free 877-381-4567 questions at collegeview.com and the chat room is open if you've not signed in tonight it's very easy to do do that during the break and you can send your comments in there don't go anywhere we continue right after this Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Do you remember when you went to church and heard sermons that clearly set forth the New Testament plan of salvation? Can you recall when churches rang out with lessons that plainly exposed false teachers and false doctrines? Can you think back to a time when preachers and members of the church were set for the defense of the gospel? If you are craving to find a congregation that is like the church you can remember from years ago, like the church back in the first century, please visit the College View Church soon. They're trying hard to be a church just like the church you remember, like the one you read about in your Bible. Come and see. Visit the College View Church of Christ. Here are some quotes worth pondering. Remember that you're needed. There's important work to be done that will not be done unless you do it. Every morning you're handed 24 golden hours. They're one of the few things in this world that you get free of charge. If you had all the money in the world, you couldn't buy an extra hour. What will you do with this priceless treasure? Remember, you must use it as it is given only once. Once wasted, you cannot get it back. You have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. Someday, in days to come, you will be wrestling with a great temptation or trembling under a great sorrow. But right now, you're setting the groundwork that will determine, in the day of your supreme sorrow or temptation, whether you shall miserably fail or gloriously conquer. Character cannot be made except by a steady, long-continued process. Man, I wish I'd said that. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. And we are back, and we continue as we discuss inspiration of the Bible tonight, prompted by a listener who said, you know, you would demand other religious groups to to prove that their so-called holy book is inspired. Like the Mormons. What if someone asked me to prove the Bible's inspired? How would I do it? I, I need some help with that. And so we're talking about that on the program tonight. And I was kind of surprised because when I looked in our archives, we hadn't covered that subject since 2005. Really? Yeah. I guess we figured it was too... Well, I don't know. It's, I think it's a worthy subject yeah. for sure. Yeah, certainly. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you on the program tonight. And we're hearing from a lot of our listeners in the chat room tonight. We'll include some of those comments. Now, as we you asked earlier today, what are some of the better uh, proofs that you feel uh, prove the Bible is inspired? And some you know, of our listeners tonight have some answers Right, on that. right, right. I, uh, just a little bit before that, I, uh, maybe we should define what we mean by inspiration, Jacob. Can we take just a oh, minute to, yes. to, to yeah, define yeah. what we mean by inspiration? Yes. Um, there are a lot of different views. When you talk about inspiration, a lot of people have different views. Uh, some some people say that parts of the Bible are in, may be inspired and other parts aren't, mm-hmm. which is a totally unworkable situation. Because if that's the case, how do we know which parts are and which parts aren't? Yeah, that that doesn't help us. There are some people who say that the Bible is inspired in the sense that maybe an artist is inspired. He sees a beautiful sunset and he sits down and he paints it. He, he, got, of, he was moved by the moment. Yeah. That these Bible writers were just moved by the moment. They wrote some, they wrote oh, some really amazing re- stuff. They, yeah. they wrote some good words, yeah, but yeah. that's just it. They were just moved by okay. the moment. No. Some people say, when they talk about inspiration, they, they suggest the idea of mechanical dictation, that God was dictating and they were just like a machine writing down what he said. A human typewriter. The problem with that is 
we know when we read the Bible, we can detect various styles of writing. Some some authors, for instance, the Apostle John just stands out. You can you can see his style of writing versus the writings of the Apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. So God didn't just dictate, and they weren't just robotic. You know, uh, would that be what was it? the stenographers? Stenographer. They were ro- robot, mm-hmm. robotic stenographers. Yes. Uh, uh, and then yet, yet another false view is what we might call thought inspiration, mm-hmm. that God gave men the basic ideas, but he left it up to them to flesh it out in words. Oh, if that, I see. If, yeah. if that was the case, then again, that wouldn't be infallible. He just he, said write about love, and they started writing. And, but they were wrong, what uh-huh. they wrote. They, yeah. It was a good concept, but they didn't, they <laughs> they didn't write it. it. They yeah. missed it. You know, we uh, talked to a guy who may have felt that way, that, that, that preacher who thought that homosexuality was okay, remember? He thought he knew more than Paul and even Jesus. Yeah, that's sort of what he would be thinking. Probably about. so. Yeah. The the right view of inspiration is uh, verbal, meaning every word is there because mm-hmm. God wanted it there. Plenary means means full. So verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures is oh, what we believe. Yeah. Now okay. here's a quote I think is a pretty good one from Homer Haley. He said, verbal inspiration of the scriptures is what I believe. I mean by this, that when prophets of the old covenant or apostles of the new spoke or wrote, they spoke and wrote by inspiration, God giving them the idea and selecting and choosing from their vocabulary the words that they were to use in making the idea known. I simply affirm that the original message and the original manuscripts were spoken and written by men as they were guided by the Holy Spirit, both in thought and words in which the thoughts were made known. I believe the Bible sustains this proposition. Uh, here's another quote, uh, this one uh, from a book called Inspiration by Keith Ward. He says, what is inspiration? Often it is described as God breathed, which means that God breathed the words into the mouths of the men who spoke. But this does not answer how. The Holy Spirit sometimes dictated word for word what the prophet was to write. Moses was commanded to write these words, Exodus 34, verse 37. On this occasion, he was merely a, a secretary who took dictation from God. Much scripture does not seem to be dictated the authors were permitted to use their own style and background, their vocabularies and grammatical ability very widely. In such cases, the role of inspiration is to guarantee that the words or illustrations the author chooses exactly express the will and word of God. The author is given some freedom in his writing, but not the freedom to err. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and then one more quote from a man named Frank Gabling. The original documents of the Bible were written by men who, though permitted the exercise of their own personalities and literary talents, yet wrote under the control and guidance of the Spirit of God, the results being in every word of the original documents a perfect and errorless recording of the exact message which God desired to give to man. Oh, that's great. All right, so uh, just just let's make sure that that's what we're talking about. When we say we believe the Bible is inspired, it's fully, completely, word for word. There. And, of course, obviously it wasn't written in English, but in the original languages, the words that were used by the authors were there because God wanted them to be there. And the Scripture claims that type of inspiration, by the way. Exactly. Yeah, we can look at first, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All right, that tells us that God put every word there that he wanted there, uh, and other passages as well. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we're not making a claim there that the Scriptures don't support. Now, uh, we ask the question, what are some of the arguments that you believe best prove that position that the Bible is verbal what, Ari? Verbal canary? Verbal plenary. Very verbal plenary. <laughs> all right. It was inspired, every word was inspired by God. One of the our listeners, Kevin, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, says the number of writers with the same theme is certainly a compelling argument on its own. Explain that. Uh, there were a number of authors of the, of the scriptures. Uh, the number is around 30, is it not? 
Uh, 40, almost 40. 40 of the 66 books of the, of the Bible. Now, the amazing part uh, of that is that these 40 writers weren't sitting in a room together when they wrote the scriptures. Exactly right. And I would argue, if we want to start making our arguments for the inspiration of the scripture, I would argue that that unity of the Bible is a proof of inspiration. And I think one of our... Eric, email, Eric uh, yeah. suggested the cohesiveness and the inerrancy of the scriptures yeah. uh, is remarkable. And that is especially remarkable when you consider there are 40 writers. Uh, it would be remarkable in and of itself and difficult for some of us to write uh, a book by ourselves that was cohesive and inerrant. Yeah, uh, Chris in Atlanta says the fact that we have the Bible is proof. We have multiple books penned by multiple authors from various places over 1,500-year time period. Yet in spite of this incredible diversity, we have a unified, non-contradictory theme. Uh, so he mentions that as well. That is an amazing thing. I, uh, we're going to talk in a minute about what is the most compelling proof to you. To me, I'll tell you right now, that right there is the compelling proof to me. How could these authors... You think about this. The oldest parts of the Bible were written about 1,500 years before Christ was born. Moses mm-hmm. wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And that was about 1,500 years before Christ. Okay, 1,500 years now, B.C. And, and then, of course, the newest parts of our Bible were written in the first century A.D. So over that approximately 1,500-year time period, these 40 different human penmen wrote the Bible. As you said, Jacob, they didn't have the opportunity to sit down around some huge conference table and say, okay, now we're going to talk about uh, how God chose Abraham. Abraham. And now, when we, when we talk about that, be sure you say it this way, because if you say it that way and I say it this way, then we're going to end up in a mess. Right. They didn't have that opportunity to confer like that. And so when they wrote on the same subjects, how did these men, many of whom who did not know each other, uh, they didn't live in the same places. They didn't live in the same time frames. They didn't even all speak the same languages. How did they end up with a finished document when you put it all together? It's, it has this unified theme and no contradictions. And I think that would be just impossible unless God was guiding the process. Imagine, I mean, you're talking 1,500 years. Yeah, think about it. what was 1,500 years ago. 1,500 years ago was about... 500, 500 AD. AD. Yeah. Back in the, you know, early dark ages. Yeah. Uh, and people back then were writing something, and here we are in the 21st century, and we're writing something. We don't know each other. We don't confer. We yeah. don't compare our writings to make sure they're good. But just out of the blue, you put our writings together, mm-hmm. and they are harmonious. Yes. The chances of that are, are just impossible. Yeah. Only could it happen because God was guiding the process. All right, and so those are so we got so we got that argument. So to our to our emailer who was saying, how would I prove today that the Bible was inspired? Prove it that way. Yeah. And by the way, in comparison to something like the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon can't make that claim. Oh, that's true. The Book of Mormon has self contradictions in it, and those can be documented. We don't we're not studying Mormonism tonight, but those can be documented. They can't pass that first test. How many, how many writers on the Book of Mormon? Was it just was it just Joseph? Well, yeah, Smith? just Joseph Smith. I mean, he wrote their primary books, the the uh, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, a book called Doctrines and Covenants, and a book called Pearl of Great Price, mm-hmm. all written by Joseph Smith. Supposedly, he was inspired to do it, but they they can't even pass that first test that the Bible passes. One author, he, he couldn't even write and not contradict himself. Mm-hmm. We got forty authors writing. And they don't contradict one another. All right. 
Well, so, that's a good argument, and it's uh, such a good argument. We ought to take a break and let it sink, sink in for a minute, and right. uh, we'll get your comments on the other side. Let us know your thoughts. The telephone line is open. Why not give us a call right now? Be ready to go when we get back, or uh, send us an email. Give us a chat in the chat room tonight. Don't go anywhere. We continue after this week's bullet point. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. When Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, became king over Judah, he secured his position on the throne by killing all of his brothers. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. This was just the beginning of his horribly wicked reign. He made shrines to various idolatrous gods and coerced God's people to worship those idols. Finally, because of his great wickedness, Elijah the prophet sent him a letter foretelling of his death by a terrible intestinal illness. The prophecy became true, and Jehoram died in severe pain, 2 Chronicles 21, verse 19. In a final footnote of this terrible life, the inspired record says that the customary burial proceedings of a king were not performed, and that he departed, quote, to no one's sorrow, verse 20. What a sad commentary on a misspent life. In contrast to that, consider the death of a woman named Dorcas, recorded in Acts chapter 9. She was, quote, abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. When the apostle Peter came to the place, the room was full of people who were, quote, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Her obviously good life left a positive and lasting impression on all who knew her, and they mourned her passing. As Jehoram and Dorcas, we too will one day pass away from this life. We wonder, will we be missed? Will anyone mourn when we are gone? The answer to these questions, of course, is to be determined by how we spend our time here and now. If we are faithful and dedicated to both God and man, and if we are busy serving the Lord and others, and if we live less for self and more for family, friends, and neighbors, and if we keep our eye firmly fixed on what is really most important in this life, then there's a good probability that our passing will be more like Dorcas's and not like Jehoram's. When you die, will anyone miss you? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name's Jeffrey Vernon. I'm 13, and this is the Virtual Bible Study. That was me five years ago. Now I'm 18, and I still love listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Missed a recent Virtual Bible Study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you back to the program tonight. And if you want to visit our website, it is thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And we might uh, let you know that... Uh, if you'll visit that website in the next coming day or so, you'll find out more information about a sermon podcast uh, from our website there. You can listen to a recent sermon that was presented here. Yeah, you, uh, you've, you've encouraged us to start podcasting a sermon a week, and so we're going to try to do that starting this week. And you can find that uh, from our website, and it'll be up on iTunes soon, hopefully, uh, if you want to podcast a recent sermon. We're talking about the inspiration of the Bible and looking at proofs why our listeners believe that the the scriptures are in fact inspired. Uh, We've looked at the fact that the Bible is uh, written by multiple authors over 1,500 years without error. Along those lines, Chris in Atlanta said, the fact that we even have the Bible is proof. We have multiple books penned by multiple authors from various places over 1,500 years, yet in spite of this incredible diversity, we have a unified, non-contradictory theme. We have many early sources close to the events of the Bible. You know, just, uh, just, uh, just comment briefly there. The survivability—he's he, sort of hinting at the idea of the survivability of the scriptures too—and that is incredible. You know, the Bible is one of the oldest books of antiquity. It's not the oldest, but it is one of the oldest. Most books ever written have just simply been lost mm-hmm. because of apathy and disinterest. Mm-hmm. And people didn't care, and they just fell out of use, and they vanished from the scene. They're gone. Mm-hmm. The Bible, on the other hand, has been 
uh, viciously sought after for destruction, there have been concerted efforts by strong world leaders to rid the world of Bibles, and yet the Bible persists. And that's that's maybe a more subtle argument uh, to the inspiration of Scripture, but God did promise in the Bible that that would be the case. That would never His Word would never pass away. Not only does it exist, it is perhaps the most well documented uh, document of antiquity that we have. Oh, the most by far, copies, way yeah. by far, way by far. Okay. All right, and so those are some good arguments uh, from Chris. He goes on, he says, We have over 300 prophecies about Jesus centuries before he was born. According to one study I read, the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is one in 100 trillion. The odds of one man fulfilling 48 of these uh, 300 prophecies that Chris references is one in 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 followed by 157 zeros. Pretty amazing to me, he says. The list of arguments could go on and on. Yeah, I, I love that argument, uh, Chris, and I, I have made that too. Actually, I've got a source on that. If anybody wants to follow up on those numbers that Chris just uh, provided by email, there's a book called Science Speaks by Peter Stoner, published by Moody Press, and uh, uh, he he does that exactly. He takes eight prophecies of Jesus. Of course, as Chris accurately said, there are over 300 in the Old Testament. But he, uh, this Peter Stoner took just eight of those prophecies, and did some mathematical calculations on the probability of any individual person fulfilling just those eight by chance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, it, it was just an astronomical number. That's just eight prophecies. Jesus, there were 300-plus prophecies of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled them all. And so fulfilled prophecy is a powerful argument for the inspiration of the Scriptures. Um Eric in Fayetteville also agrees with uh, that proof. All right, and I think uh, uh, let's see here. We, Jim in Mount Ple- uh, Jim, who's formerly from Mount Pleasant, uh, now in Kentucky, uh, says uh, if, if is the fact that Jesus Christ an, is an actual being who lived in the first century and whose life was recorded as a real life by not only the biblical writers but both by his enemies and the scholars of his day. They said he was an actual person who lived. His teaching cannot be denied. His miracles cannot be denied. He said he is the Son of God, and God gave him the words he taught. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. John six thirty eight. He that rejecteth me, uh, rejected me, and received not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. John twelve forty eight and forty nine. It all centers around Jesus. Prove him false. You prove the Bible false. If he is true, then the Bible is true. And so this is connected with those prophecies. Yeah, the prophecies would factor into the proving that Jesus was the Son of God. And Jim's argument is a great one, I think. Proof that Jesus... I remember a fellow once, and I didn't, I'd never thought of it that way, and he made the point, and it's the same point Jim's making here. He said, why do I believe that God created the heavens and the earth? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. Why do I believe that there was a flood in the days of Noah? Yeah. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. You know, really, if that that singular event, if you prove it, then everything else in the Bible has to be true. Jesus spoke about God creating. Mm -hmm. Jesus spoke about Noah and the flood. Prove Jesus, and those things have to be true. And so, uh, you know, that that's a that's an interesting uh, approach. Well, and uh, along those lines, Chris says uh, on an unrelated note, he heard this said from the pulpit one time and really liked it. The Bible can be broken down into three main themes that are present throughout all its pages. Someone is coming. Someone has come. Someone is coming again. And uh, that's true. So if you disprove that someone, then you can throw the whole book away. Yeah.
All right. All right. Uh, we have a longer email. We don't have time to reference all of the many scriptures referenced by uh, by Pat in Harvest, Alabama. He says messianic prophecies. They were specific. Couldn't have been guessed at. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven verse twelve. Betrayal money used to buy potter's fields. Zechariah eleven thirteen. Cast lots for Jesus. Garments of uh, Psalm twenty two eighteen. Uh, Jesus side pierced, Zechariah 12, verse 10. Uh, of course, the prophecy about born at Bethlehem was Matthew 5. For those are, uh, Micah 5, verse 2. Those are some of those uh, uh, prophecies. Those Some of those were the specific eight that uh, that Chris was writing about that Peter Stoner mentioned in his book. Uh, he goes into a whole lot of other prophecies. Uh, there's just a lot of prophecies in the Bible. Uh, and... Fulfilled prophecy has got to be one of your strong arguments of the Bible. All right. Another argument that we can make uh, is made in the chat room by Dell. What about archaeological findings that have been found in the past 100 years that were previously unknown and yet mentioned in the Bible? That's an interesting uh, proof as well. The Bible is historically and geographically accurate when it talks about uh, ancient civilizations. In fact, uh, civilizations that we've discovered within the last 100 years the scriptures mentioned them, and they were accurate. Yeah, the, the historic accuracy of the Bible, as proved by archaeology, is is another proof. So we, what, we, what we're saying here, we've got proofs. We've got the 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 unified theme and infallibility, non-contradictions yes. in the Bible. One, fulfilled promises. Number two, I'm trying to sort of summarize for our listener who said, I don't know if I could make the arguments. I don't know if I could prove it. So here's one, the harmony and unity of the Bible, right. no contradiction. Number two, uh, the fulfilled prophecies that are mentioned in the Bible. Number three, now we're going to a third argument, and it's history and archaeology. Uh, there's, there's a lot of imp- impressive finds, even within the last hundred years. I think in the chat room, Dell in the chat room said there's a lot of archaeolo- archaeological findings in the last hundred years that have proved things that previously weren't thought to be so. The Bible said, for instance, here's an example. For a long time, critics argued that the first five books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses as the Bible itself claims, because, they said, writing had not been invented in that time period. They said, the Bible says yeah. Moses wrote the first five books. They'll tell, people didn't even know how to write back then. Now, that's a fairly recent criticism. In fact, here's a quote from one critic uh, in 1892, so just a, little over, over just a little over 100 years ago. In 1892, one critic wrote, the time of which the pre-Mosaic narratives treat is a sufficient proof of their legendary character. It was a time prior to all knowledge of writing. Well, that would be a good argument if it was true. Yeah, but in recent times, there's been so much archaeological evidence discovered that proves that writing was commonly practiced in mm-hmm. Moses' day. Mm-hmm. And, and now one author said that the question should ever have been raised whether, author, whether Moses could have known how to write appears to us now absurd. Yeah. Words, there's so much abundance of archaeology proving that sure men knew how to write. It's not even a question. The more that we look, the more we find that the scriptures must be inspired, and the archaeological discoveries we found are in harmony with what the scriptures reveal. Yeah, let me read it. Here's a quote I like from a book called Rivers in the Desert by Nelson Gluck. He said, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Mm. So, I mean, uh, and so that's a huge field in itself, and I'm not any expert in that at all, but 
there's been just obviously tremendous amount of work done by archaeologists in the Bible lands, so to speak, and they have confirmed that the Bible uh, is accurate. When it refers to times and places, geographical locations and historical events, they've all been proven to be accurate. Now, think about that. That's absolutely necessary. If the Bible is inspired by God, but, oh, oh, sorry, we missed it on that bit of history. (laughs) That wouldn't work. Nope. No, but, but but when we find the Bible is accurate, even when previously men thought it was inaccurate, but now they have found ar- uh, archaeological discoveries that prove its accuracy, that's just confirmation of the Bible's inspiration. That's exactly right. And so we look forward uh, to hearing more arguments as we go along tonight. We've got just a little while to go, plenty of time uh, to take your uh, comments. Real quickly, let me get uh, Anthony's email. He's talking about arguments. He mentions not enough time to go into detail, but things like fulfilled prophecy, geographical, scientific, historical accuracy, coherent message, despite multitudes of authors, a multitude of authors and great spans of time. We've, we've talked about some of those. We want to still talk about some of the more that Anthony mentioned. We need there. to talk about the scientific accuracy when we get back from the break. Along those lines, Peter in Australia says, the more scientific knowledge we obtain, the more it supports the more difficult passages in the Old Testament. Is that true? Does science support with what the Bible Teaches, you know. I think it does. I think well, that's a true statement. Let's, let's, that talk about, let's talk about that. Because science has been horribly, horribly wrong throughout time, terribly wrong on many things. Will the scriptures follow those trends of fifteen hundred uh, over that fifteen hundred period? Year in other period? words, what about the shape of the earth? One of our in the chat room, guest five sixteen, mentions the shape of the earth, pathways of the sea, hydraulic water, hydrologic water cycle, and so forth. When it was the scientifically accepted norm that the world was flat, mm. was the Bible saying the world is flat? Uh, let's talk uh, about that. Yeah, okay. All right, we'll get a break. We'll go to the top of the hour right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Do you remember when no one would have thought twice about getting the church involved in daycare centers, kindergartens, softball leagues, and youth camps? Are you upset when churches spend more time and money on social programs and recreational activities than on spreading the gospel? Are you tired of seeing congregations with their emphasis in entirely the wrong areas? The College View Church is still preaching the same gospel and practicing the same things that you remember from years ago. They're committed to the idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. Check them out. Visit the College View Church of Christ. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A record 70% of Americans believe divorce is morally acceptable, according to Gallup's 2008 Values and Beliefs Survey. That's an 11-point increase from seven years previous. Mike McManus, co-founder of Marriage Savers, said two generations of high divorce rates have made divorce the norm in America. He said, quote, since 1970, that's 42 million divorces, shattering the lives of 40 million children. He said, quote, we have the highest divorce rate in the world, and for 70% of Americans to say it's morally acceptable is really quite stunning. That's via CitizensLink.com. God's Word says in Malachi 2, verse 16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. And we welcome you back. We're glad you're here tonight to talk about proofs of the Bible's inspiration on the program tonight. Before the break, we talked about the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Is the Bible scientifically accurate? We believe it is. In fact, we believe it's 
free from the common misunderstandings of the era in which yeah, we it didn't was get written. Any, we didn't get that by uh, by email too much, or, or yeah, by email. But it has been mentioned in the chat room. Uh, now let's get clear on this, Jacob. The Bible is not a science book. Okay. It wasn't written to be a science book. All right. For that matter, it wasn't written to be a history book or a geography book either. Mm-hmm. But it mentions hist- historical events. It mentions geographical locations. We would expect it to be accurate when it does. It mentions things, although it's not a science book, it mentions things that science could either confirm or deny mm-hmm. later on. Okay. No, so... Please get the point. We're not saying that the Bible was intended to be a scientific textbook, but we would expect that when it mentions things that might be either that, that could be addressed by a scientific analysis, we would expect it to be accurate. If God is its author and God is the creator of, of the universe and all the physical laws that govern the universe, right. we would expect Him to know what He's talking about. Right. And so that's what we mean when we talk about the the scientific connection in the Bible. Okay. Now, uh, for instance, what about the suspension of the earth? Uh, ancient men speculated widely about how the earth was held in position. Some said it was supported on the back of a strong man. Others believed it was carried on the back of elephants and so forth. The strong man was uh, standing on a turtle, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Uh, during the age when those speculations were considered scientifically accurate, the Bible accurately said in Job 26, verse 7, God hangeth the earth upon nothing. Mm-hmm. All right, so there's no physical support or pillar holding up the earth. Yeah. Uh, it was mentioned in the chat room, shape of the earth. The earliest known image that men had of the earth was that it was flat, a flat, rigid platform at the center of the universe. The concept of a spherical earth was not widely accepted until the Renaissance. And so you and that's from Encyclopedia America. And if you went what happened if you went too far did you just fall off? That's what they believe. Oh boy. Yet approximately 2500 years before men discovered that the world was round, Isaiah was inspired to write it as he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. Uh, the word circle of the earth is from a Hebrew word that can mean, according to Davidson's analytic Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon, it can mean a sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Douay version says the globe of the earth. Moffat's t- version says the round earth. So, again, those are just some things from science. Again, I, and I, I believe what is most significant in that realm is not what the Bible says, but what it doesn't say. That the Bible does not go off the chart and and follow after the superstitious views of uninformed men. You know, for instance, Moses was trained in the best knowledge of the Egyptians. He was raised yeah. as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh-huh. As such, Pharaoh would have, uh, uh, in Pharaoh's school, Moses would have been taught that men came from white worms that crawled out of the of the Nile River. Right. Well, Moses then sits down to write about beginnings. He's mm-hmm. writing the book of Genesis. Yeah. What does he write? Worms crawled out of the Nile River, and that's where men came from. Oh, no that's way. not there. Nothing yeah. like that is yeah. there. Not in there. No worms instead, at all coming out of the Nile River. Yeah. Instead, he writes a, a creation account that has withstood all the attacks of unbelievers for so long. It still makes sense. Yeah. Uh, that's the, So, again, in regards to science, I, I think maybe some people have tried to overstate their case about the scientific foreknowledge in the Bible. Uh, and and maybe we do ourselves some harm by trying to overstate that case. I think the argument to be made is more so what the Bible doesn't say. 
in, in, in regards to including the super, superstitious uh, misunderstandings of, of men in a, in a pre-scientific age. What about uh, the idea that life is in the blood? That's one that uh, that sort of got George Washington, didn't it? Uh, this whole idea of bloodletting, wasn't that a common thing that uh, people didn't understand? That you needed blood to live? Uh, maybe so. But again, it would be something that would be in line with current understanding. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, we had uh, uh, we asked a question real quickly. That we'll do this. We're running out of time. Uh, we asked a question of all the arguments. Which do you think is the most compelling, Jacob? Uh, yeah. Here's uh, here's Chris in Atlanta. He says he believes the most compelling argument are the fulfilled prophecies about Jesus. Because of those statistics that he cited early. And Eric has an interesting take. He says, uh, I don't know if it's the strongest argument, but it's one I haven't heard many make, and yet I find it convincing. The inspiration of the Bible is clear to me in its righteous judgments. What people would write such a book about themselves, showing over and over their moral failures as a whole and those of their heroes? Yeah. I think, I think that I, I like that argument too, Eric, and I think it is a, it is a compelling argument. Maybe maybe not the strongest argument, but if you stop and think about it, who who wrote the Bible? Uh, you know, it, uh, if if it was written by bad men, why would they teach such a high moral standard? If yeah. it was written by good men, but it wasn't true, they claimed it was the inspi- inspiration of God, but it wasn't. Then they wouldn't really be good men. Yep. You, you boil it all down, and by process elimination, you get to the conclusion that one thing the Bible you, must have been written by God. One point you've made over and over again is the brevity of the the, the, the writing. As we talk about the style, the, the fact that the Bible is so so brief and uh, covers so much ground and uh, and this deals with the subjects it does in such brevity. Yeah, Jim in, in Kentucky says uh, the, the strongest arguments that he uh, believes are about the proofs of Jesus as the Son of God. Prove him, and you prove prove him wrong. You prove the Bible wrong. Prove him right. You prove that the Scriptures are right. Okay. I, and I went on record earlier in the program, Jacob, as saying that I, to me the strongest convincing argument of the inspiration of the Bible is in its uh, cohesiveness, and uh, I think that's the word Eric used. But it's the the the, the uh, harmony and no contradiction with those forty writers writing. It's just incredible. Quickly, you asked two more questions that we need to get into. Yeah, we asked about internal and external evidences. What are they and what are their best uses? Uh, Eric answers, internal proofs are found within the text itself. External proofs are evidence from other fields of study like archaeology and ancient history to substantiate the truthfulness of the Bible. All right, so that being the case, internal proofs, Jacob. Yes. Fulfilled prophecy is an internal proof. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's uh, maybe supported a little bit externally because, for instance, the the prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled are also mentioned by some secular historians. The prophecies about the nation of Israel, while the Bible states the prophecy and its fulfillment, we can confirm that fulfillment by some some secular historical evidence as well. So. Prophecy might be both internal and external, yes. depending on how you approach it. Yes. But the harmony of the Bible, that's an internal proof, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, what would be the best use of internal evidences? Eric says, internal evidences seem to me to be the most important because the Bible should stand on its own as the word of God. Uh, Chris says, um, some internal proofs are fulfilled prophecy, the unity of the Bible, uh, Unknown scientific scientific facts that were written well before men knew them to be fa- to be fact. Uh, he gives an example. Genesis one states, "In the beginning, for many years, science thought that the universe is infinite, 
now the Big Bang Theory shows the universe had a specific beginning, and he gives some other examples. Uh, he says, internal evidences show the inspiration of the writers. Uh, and then Jim in Kentucky says, uh, internal proofs are those things written in the Word which cannot be denied. Did Jesus really resurrect Lazarus? Did the miracles recorded in the Bible really happen? If so, then that is proof of a superior external power beyond man. If things mentioned by prophets hundreds and thousands of years before an event actually come true, then you must have a better explanation than luck. Did Abraham really become the father of many nations? Did Moses lead the Jews out of Egypt, defeating the greatest and most powerful army of the world? Did David, an untrained youth, really kill a battle-hardened giant named Goliath? Did Isaiah really prophesy about a virgin giving birth to a child, and it being a boy, and it being in Bethlehem, etc.? All things which were spoken before they ha uh, they happened. And so uh, that, uh, Jim would point to those prophecies as well and the miracles. Okay, all right. Um so internal evidence is things we look within the scriptures that that prove the scriptures. That, that you could just take the scriptures uh, and and show from just you're not using anything but the Bible itself to show to make arguments for its inspiration. Okay. But when you begin to bring in other fields of study like archaeology or geography or hist history or science. Then you're looking at other fields that point to confirmation of Scripture. And Jim has good comments along those lines yeah. as well. He says, external proofs are those things provided outside of the biblical writing. Information provided by Philio of, of Alexandria, that a person like Pontius Pilate did exist in the first century and was perfect of, of Judea. That J Josephus, a Jewish historian, mentions Jesus, John the Baptist, and the beheading of James that a Roman historian named Tacitus mentions and also the same information on Pilate, these three and others confirm the information mentioned in the scriptures. Yeah. Uh, and this is Chris. And I like his point. External evidences verify what is written in the pages. It also helps to answer the claim we use circular reasoning when we believe the Bible is inspired because it says so. I think that's, that's really, when I ask the question, that's the point that I was trying to get at. We need to be informed in some of these external evidences because uh, if, if, you're, if you're studying with an atheist, then he doesn't believe the Bible, so you can't use the Bible to prove anything. Right. You've got you've to come at that from, from these external evidences before you can then get him to open his eyes and give some consideration to the internal evidences. So both the, the internal evidences and the external evidences are helpful for us, and we need to be informed about them. All right. Uh, Eric says external proofs can be valuable faith boosters. The fact that the peoples and places mentioned in the Bible are, for the most part, well documented outside of the Scripture strengthens our faith in the truthfulness of the Bible accounts. Compare this with the Book of Mormon, which mentions civilizations, technologies, etc., for which there are no external evidences that they ever existed. Yeah, the, the, that's one of the things about the Book of Mormon that proves it's not inspired is because it mentions things as being so long before they were so. Yeah. Uh, just just uh, chronological impossibilities are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon fails the test of inspiration. Some of the very things that we've talked about tonight, you take those same tests and apply it to the Book of Mormon, you're going to say, well, that can't be inspired. Whereas you apply these tests to the Bible and you end up with the conclusion the Bible absolutely is the inspired Word of God. All right. All the proofs point to that undeniable conclusion. Monty yeah. has been behind the controls all night, has been silent. Monty, your thoughts about... Uh, Inspiration of the Bible. Any uh, arguments that uh, we overlooked tonight? I, I don't really know of any that I think we overlooked. I, I agree with all the things we've said, and especially like we're talking about external evidences. 
where the Bible talked about the world was round thousands of years before men discovered it and like the currents or pathways in the seas, the Bible talked about long before men discovered it. But the fact that men didn't know it yet didn't mean that the Bible was wrong. So when we get to the best of our provable knowledge, and I'm talking about provable things, not just theories, there's nothing in our knowledge that, te- that really contradicts the Bible. The Bible confirms itself through the things that we know. The more we learn, the more we realize uh, the truthfulness of the Scripture. I found a quote here in my notes from Irvin Himmel, and I thought it was pretty good. He says, obviously enough, there are some Bible facts that we can never expect archaeology to verify. For instance, we could scarcely expect a relic to be unearthed, which would prove conclusively that Peter walked on the water or that demons entered into swine. Notwithstanding, every piece of evidence that confirms any part of the text increases our faith in the whole of the Bible. And every discovery that tends to broaden our understanding of the living word deepens our faith. Archaeology and the Bible are friends. Each tells its story of the ancient past in its own way, but because each tells the truth, one is not at variance with the other. Yeah. Pretty good on on the external evidence of archaeology. All right. Well, we've had a good discussion tonight, and hopefully it's been helpful to that listener who had uh, questions about how do you prove that the Scriptures are, in fact, yeah, that's, the that's a very worthy question. I believe that all of us as Christians have got to be ready to answer that challenge. All right. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks, that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with fear and meekness. First Peter 3.15. All right. Well, that brings us to another point that we need to make before we conclude. And that is that if you have a question about some Bible topic that you'd like heard discussed and answers perhaps to some questions that you have, Send that uh, suggestion to us anytime. We'd love to hear from you. We'd like to uh, we'd like to talk about things that are helpful to you. And so, if you have a suggestion or a question that you'd like discussed, uh, please send that comment in. Dad, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Jacob and uh, Monty. Thank you for your time uh, driving the controls tonight. Thank you. And uh, thank you for being on the other end of the line. We we'll look forward to talking with you again this time next week on another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.